Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Susan Johnson is the author of 10 books, eight novels, a memoir and a non-fiction book. Before she began writing, Susan was a journalist working for a diverse range of publications, including the Australian Women's Weekly, the Sun Herald, the Sydney Morning Herald and the National Times. Susan has lived in the UK, France and Greece, but returned to Brisbane in 2010, only to take off again in 2019 to live on the Greek island of Kithera with her elderly mother. Earlier this month, her brand new novel, From Where I Fell, was released by Alan and Unwin. And though I've not read any of Susan's works before, this was one heck of an introduction. A book that explored grief, motherhood, the power of friendship and new beginnings. It was an incredibly powerful, witty and illuminating read that I won't forget easily. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Susan to the podcast today. Hi, Susan. Hi, Claudine, and thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Congratulations on this wonderful book. Does it ever get old seeing one of your books venture out into the world? I would like to say it, it does, and it's, I'm blasé about it, but really it's still the same as when I published my first book in 1987. You still have all the same sort of terrors and excitements and, you know, thrills. It's, it is, it's a very personal thing, even though, you know, you know that it's, you've got to somehow disengage from the public judgments on it. But it's it's a very anxious time, and I think most writers would say it's an anxiety-making time as well as a joyous time. Not only does this book have a fabulous premise, a friendship formed over the internet and in the text of emails, but it's told entirely through these email exchanges, a modern version of the epistolary novel or a novel made up of letters, journals, entries and the like. So I wanted to ask you, what inspired this novel? Where did the idea come from? Well, it's always really hard when you try and track back where an idea came from for a novel because it comes from so many areas. But I do know that one thing that I was thinking about, like how to write about divorce and motherhood, because I had been through a divorce myself in 2011. And I know one of the things that people say is that, you know, oh, you know, one in three marriages ends in divorce, blah, blah, blah. And it's just one of those things. But I was really under the impression that divorce has the potential to arouse our, our strongest and most primitive emotions. I hadn't, can't think of any single friend who's been through a divorce who hasn't felt it very profoundly. So I was kind of interested in going to write around that theme. And then around about probably about the same time as I was going through my divorce, I sent off an email to a friend who's a publisher in America. She's in St. Paul, Minnesota. And But I didn't realise she changed her email server just recently. So basically the, the, the email to my friend went ended up going to a completely random person who had the same beginning email as, as my friend. But the thing was he actually wanted to be a writer. So he was really interested in all the things I was discussing in my email. And so we got into this big, long discussion. And, in fact, we're still in touch like 10 years later. And so at some point... I, I thought, would that be a premise for a novel? And that then the, that me, set me down this sort of rabbit hole of thinking, well, actually, I love 
novels in letters. You know, some of my favourite ones, 84 Charing Cross Road, I don't know if you've read that. It was out in the 80s. It's a wonderful Helen Hamp that was made into a film. Then I thought, actually, I remembered that Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was actually a novel in letters. And the more I thought about it, the more I, I, I went back and I looked at all, all these books that were epistolary novels, you know, novels in letters, and I thought, I wonder if I can do it. So that's when the hard work began. So this novel centres on two female characters. In Sydney, Australia, we have Pamela Robinson and on the other side of the world, now I cannot say this town's name. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll say it for you. It's called Schenectady. And I can only say it because I have a lot of Greek Australian friends and we can talk about Greece in in, in a while, but I've also got a lot of Greek American friends and one of those friends came from Schenectady. And when I met her when I was a young woman, first in Greece, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I just became fascinated with with this place and she's she's a great storyteller and it's actually the birthplace of General Electric. And so I think Schenectady, New York, has has, has featured in more of my novels than probably any other Australian writer. Well, I must say I'd never heard of it before, but that's how how clued in I am about General Electric's origins. (laughs) I'm not even going to try and say it. But our other character, Chrysanthi Senia Woods, comes from this place in New York. So we've got two women on opposite sides of the world. So, Susan, for those people who haven't been lucky enough to read it as I have, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the story and what happens to these two women. I realised early on that I have to have a reason for these two women to connect. Like, why would they keep talking? And just as my friend who the one I sent the the email to in St. Paul, he actually lived in San Jose, California. And the reason that we kept talking was because of his interest in writing, because he wanted to be a writer. And he was asking me, how do you get an agent? You know, what what age were you when got published? All those sorts of things. So I knew that in order to have a connection, these two women had to have a connection. And so what the connection is, the the email that that Pamela sends off is to her ex-husband. He's basically not talking to her. So it's a very anguished sort of email. She's sending it off. That's Pamela in Sydney. And for Chrysanthi or Chris in Schenectady in upstate New York, it's a town about two hours out of New York. First of all, she's she's been living in the same place for a long time and it's quite obvious from Pamela's email that, that her husband, ex-husband, is in Paris, which immediately intrigues Chris. You know, why is he in Paris? What What's the story? And also, personality-wise, Pamela's a bit of a blurter. You know, she's she's one of those very emotional, you might even say intemperate sort of people. She, she's quite histrionic, whereas Chris is much more restrained. But also, very importantly, she's very much a helper. She's And you might even say she's a bit of a busybody. She's quite involved in other people's lives. So immediately you've got one person who seems to be in a bit of crisis and another person who is a rescuer by nature. So that's very much their link and that's their starting off point. And as they become more and more intertwined, those roles kind of get a bit mixed up. And both of them end up learning a bit more about each other just through this, you know, friendship they've got in space, really. It was an incredible way of telling their individual stories. Their voices were so incredibly distinct. And in fact, 
early on in the email exchanges, you get the distinct impression that Chris Anthony has little patience with Pamela and her overthinking, self-indulgent, oversharing way. I just loved her. I really, really did. Tell me about your inspiration for these two very different women. Well, that's always really hard too because I'm a, a very instinctive writer and I don't plan things out. So I tend to, my characters, are, I'm also a very character-based writer and my characters come first. And the first character I had, I guess, was Pamela. And, you know, people, because she is close to me, I mean, I'm a divorced single parent. I've got two sons. Pamela's got three. But obviously, you know, she shares some things with me and that I've moved around a lot. I've lived in a lot of different places, as has Pamela. Like I have also written a memoir before when my children were very young. I had a sort of birth trauma, birth injuries from from the birth of my sons. And I have written a memoir called A Better Woman, which came out uh, in about 2000. So I have written a memoir before and I, I do know the difference between a memoir and a novel. And I did at one stage think, well, could I, would I be interested in writing a memoir about divorce? Because I'm a huge fan of Rachel Cusk, for example. And uh, Rachel Cusk has written this absolutely fabulous memoir about her divorce called Aftermath. So I did consider that. And then I thought, well, actually, you know, I don't think I, I do want to do that. I mean, Rachel Cusk has sort of the, written the masterwork on it. And I'm not sure that I, I could even match an inch of that. She's just such a genius. So I thought, well, how could, could this work fictionally? So I definitely started off, you know, with having the divorced figure which who isn't myself, but, you know, is based on the, is definitely on the emotional authenticity and emotional truths that I've lived through. But then you can't, you know, the mistake that sometimes beginning writers make is that, oh, you know, I'll just sort of transfer my experience onto the page. And it never, ever, ever works. I have yet to meet, you know, to read anything where someone's just torn out the pages of their diary and sort of sent it off to their publisher. Even a writer like Helen Garner, who write, who works very closely from life in her fiction work, there's very much work involved in creating a, a fictional character. So I knew that for Pamela to work, she had to be fully fleshed out and certainly just not, a, you know, a, a transliteration of myself on the page. So she was the first one I had. And then I started to form the character of Chrysanthi. I, I, I thought that she might be Greek, half Greek or Greek, because I'm interested in Greek people and I have many dear Greek friends and it's a place that I've lived on and off for, a, you know, a, a long time at various times of my life. But then actually at, at one point I got a website and I, I got this email from a friend that I hadn't seen for 40 years when I was young on Kithira with her and she's, the email just said, I don't know if you remember me, Sue, but I have never forgotten our youthful summer days. And I thought, oh, my God, what a beautiful line. And suddenly I had this character of Chrysanthi. And I must say, as I worked more and more on the book, Chrysanthi, to me, I love Chrysanthi. She became the, the realist, like she almost took over the whole book. <laughs> she was, you know, she was, she was, I just love Chrysanthi. Even if I do say so myself, I just sort of, I, there's something about her that, that um, I don't know, just really moved me in some way that she just became very, very real to me. I can't believe that she's not out there somewhere in the world, you know. Well, you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording this podcast that I've spent a lot of time around Greek people with my husband being Greek and Chrysanthi was 
a very real character for me as well, and so was her mum. But we'll get to that a little bit yeah. later. <laughs> so as I said in my introduction, this novel was an exploration of grief in many respects. Pamela's life fell apart following her divorce and her children are missing their father and grieving also. She simply doesn't know how to help them really. But Chrysanthi's also dealing with her own grief. Writing as a way of dealing with grief is something I've explored quite a bit on different episodes of this podcast. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that you consciously wanted Pamela and Chrysanthi to do the same through their email exchange? Yes, I think I, I really did want it to be a vehicle for examining different griefs and the way that people respond to grief. You know, I don't want to give any plot spoilers, but mm. but Chrysanthi is dealing with grief and, you know, people deal in all sorts of ways with it. I mean, I've got a very dear friend whose mother is a, a Holocaust survivor. For many Holocaust survivors and their descendants, you know, there's two forms of remembering either we will never, ever, ever forget this and and that's very common with, with Jewish people. But an equally common Jewish response is let's just never talk about this again. And, you know, this is what happened to my friend that they never, ever discussed it. And it was just, let's just pretend none of this happened. And I think people do respond in different ways to grief. Um, and I really wanted to explore some of those ways. You know, there's no one good way to grieve. Uh, we all know that it, it can be very difficult for us to accept other people's ways of grieving as well. So, yeah, no, I really was, well, that was definitely one of the things I wanted to explore in the book. While we're on the subject of emails, I also, when I first started exploring emails and whether I could actually do the whole book in emails, and I didn't want it to be gimmicky, you know, I didn't want it to be this kind of really, you know, horrible gimmick that, that you know, or, or let's let's just, oh, you know, wow, it's a book of emails. In fact, my publisher didn't even want me to push on the back cover or or the front cover that, that it was a book of emails because they thought that it would just put readers off, really, that, you know, people don't want to read a, a whole novel in emails. But, in fact, I really worked very, very hard to make it like a, just read like a novel and not just as, as a series of emails. But one of the things I did find out when I started to investigate emails and think about whether I could do it was I discovered this wonderful Melbourne academic called Esther Milne. She's at Swinburne and she's written this book. She wrote it, I, I remember I reading it in about 2010. I think she's got a new book out now, but I certainly didn't, I haven't read the new one, but this is the old one uh, where she actually talks about sometimes people who don't meet um, and she talks about letter writers in, in many cases, but it could equally relate to emails. People who don't ever meet can have even sometimes a closer friendship than, than, than actual friends because they, they, get, they develop an almost telepathic sense of each other. They, they develop a you know, very, very close telepathic communication. And so I wanted these two women to have that. And in that case, you know, so they can look at it, the ways that they explore grief as well within that, because I think they do become very telepathic almost towards the end and, and very good at reading each other's moods. And that was one of the things that I loved about this. More to the point, I got the feeling that Chrysanthi in her emails was able to reveal more of her true self to Pamela than she did in her everyday real life existence? Oh, I think that, yeah, I think that's really true. I think that in, in many ways, Chrysanthi is a much more uh, dampened down, sort of closed in figure. And, uh, you know, you can see her reaching out in all sorts of ways. And one of the difficulties, it, just in terms of the craft of making the book, was how to reveal these two people if, if they're, they're the only ones telling the stories, you know, because we can all lie about ourselves. We can all 
you know, and, and, and writing a letter or writing an email is very much a performative act. You know, it's, it's, it, you, you're, you know you're, you're writing as a performance in a way. So I, I needed to show ways that they could be revealed by other people. That was quite hard technically. I had to show ways of them interacting with other people. So I think I found a way to show the way Chrysanthi's seen by her colleagues and workmates and her the people that she mixes with, her husband and her neighbours. But she is very slow to reveal herself. And so I think for her, email was very much a safe space for her to be her full self in some way. I think you'll probably guess, and listeners will probably see this or hear this as well, that Chrysanthi more than Pamela was intriguing to me. As someone, as I said before, who spent more than half my life around Greek people, I felt as if you had their measure in in the narrative. You had their measure in spades, the long-suffering good daughter in Chrysanthi and the overbearing, ungrateful, spiteful mother in Mrs Calliope Pappas. So I wanted to ask you, could you tell me a little bit about your time in Greece and how important it was in informing your Greek characters in this novel? Oh, look, it's so important. You know, I, I, I'm not Greek, but I'll tell you, my my knowledge of Greek people and when I first met Greek people and, and began to know them intimately was when I was 16. I was at a, a girls' high school in Brisbane and I met the Komnenos family. Maria was my friend and then I got introduced to her sisters, Stella and Evelyn, and to her mother, Gregoria, and her father, Emmanuel. And it was the joy of my life to go across the road from school to the Komnenos family home. They had the kippo the garden, um, Gregoria would have the Spanakopita on the table. They, you know, they were the most life-affirming, wondrous thing to me, who's a sort of, you know, fairly Anglo-Saxon white bread background. Maria is the most glorious dancer. She introduced me to Rimbetico, uh, the music of, um, of of the camps, you know, following the sacking of Smyrna, the, the music that grew up around Athens for, from all the dispossessed people from Smyrna after the sacking in t- uh, 1922. So my world just expanded like a million times. And the very first year after I left school, I was at the university part-time and I was a cadet journalist. I went to Kithira and Athens for the first time. And let me tell you, walking out, it was a it was 1976, it was the coldest winter for many, many years in Europe. And I was freezing in England, I was freezing in France, I was freezing everywhere. And then suddenly I got the ferry from Brindisi, as you did in those days, um, to Piria. And emerging into the light of of Athens, uh, of Piria, in uh, April, it was everywhere else was freezing. Athens was about, it seemed in my imagination, 20 degrees warmer than everywhere else. It must have been, you know, maybe eight degrees warmer. And the blue Greek spring sky and then it turned out that we turned up I arrived in the middle of Easter very quickly I was escorted into Athens and then suddenly the Easter celebrations were on and anybody's ever been to um, the Easter carnival in um, Athens you know you've got people in masks you've got people running around dressed up in you know that they do cross-dressing they dress in all kinds of weird you know it's a it's the wonderful the most wonderful celebration so basically I fell in love with Greece then and then you know when I was like 18 years old 
And then I went back to live there when I did my big, you know, gap year, we would call it now, but say I was 20, 21, I think. And I lived on Kithara for nine months. And Kithara, there's a lot of Greek Australians from Kithara. It's um, Castellarizio and Kithara are the two biggest islands that have given us such richness from, from Greece in post-Second World War. The tragedy of the Greek islands is many of them were just decimated both by the Second World War but also by poverty. So the reason we had we have so many Greek migrants in Australia is mainly economic reasons. But uh, Kithara at the time, so we're talking 1978, had a lot of abandoned houses. People just packed up their whole lives. You know, you'd you'd go into houses and there'd be a few family photographs on the wall. Sometimes there'd be all the furniture. People just packed up and went. And people, maybe many of them tried to come back or they couldn't or life intervened. And so we lived in this house with a well, no running water, and it was one of the most glorious experiences of my life, essentially. So that really I had a very very deep love of, of Greek Greece and the Greek people by then and uh, to my uh, horror I never went back until my one of my novels The Landing was published by Okeanos in which is a Greek publisher in 2017 so I've had a couple of novels translated into European languages but when it was translated into Greek I just thought there's no way I'm not going to go to Greece and celebrate this. So I went and it was just fantastic to be there. I got interviewed by Greek television and my Greek is Deneki, Kelo, it's not good. I don't have it. Any color? No, no, no. Okay, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so I don't have much Greek at all, and, and but I, I did, you know, a bit. And then I went to Kithra and so that in 2017, so that just led, led me to think I would really love to live here again. And so when I was working as a journalist for the Courier Mail in Brisbane, they started offering redundancies. And so I got this idea. I thought, well, if I'm going to be a relatively impoverished writer, maybe I could live on Kithra. In the meantime, my dad had died in 2010. And then my mum, I'm the only daughter, I've got two younger brothers, and my mother. Um, you know, I'd been spending a lot of time with her. So I I couldn't basically pack up and leave mum. She was 85. So I said to mum, what do you think, mum? Would you come with me to to, to live in Greece for a while? And she said, yes. So in 2019, we packed up. And, you know, there's not many 85-year-olds who would agree (laughs) to go off to Greece. And we were so lucky because, uh, of course, we went before COVID. And mum went back at the end of 2019 just before, like there were reports coming out of COVID in in China, but it hadn't even made its way to Europe. And so luckily, thank goodness, she got home safely. Me, on the other hand, I got stuck because I, even in March, um, even though we knew it was in it was in Europe, I decided to go and look at some research material about Kithira. I went to the National Archives in Kew to do some research. And anyway, I got stuck in London for four and a half months by lockdown. <laughs> That's a long answer to your question, but that, very long answer to your question. But the Greek, the Greek people mean, you know, the, the ones that I know and who are dear friends mean a lot to me in my life. And so I felt very, I feel honoured that you think that I, that I captured something of, of their story because I think it's a fascinating story and I think the Greeks have contributed 
enormously to the life of Australia and the, and the richness of our culture. Susan, I understand you're writing a memoir about your adventures in Greece uh, that, that time with your mother. Is that right? That's right. And so that's what I'm working on now. It, look, it's got a tentative title. It's called A Daughter, A Mother and a Greek Island. So the first line is Sea and Stone, A Daughter, A Mother and a Greek Island. That's its working title. I've got a long way to go and it was completely derailed by covid in two on two occasions because I, then I was a stranded Australian for six months. I, ha, I got three unused international tickets. I had to buy a business class ticket back, and then I had to pay quarantine fee, fees. So it's been you know pretty rough. And I'm now, you know, I've been back since uh, the end of January. Now I'm doing a lot of book publicity, and I will get back down to writing it. But um, I think it'll be some time off before I finish it. Probably, hopefully, maybe by the end of the year. I've got to see how I go because until I run out of money, I suppose. So, Susan, what would you like most for readers to take away from the book From Where I Fell? What I want and what I hope for as, as a writer is I want to capture some sort of sense of what it means to be alive and passing through this journey of life. The books that I love the most, um, I've mentioned Rachel Cusk, I love Elizabeth Strouch, I love I love Charlotte Wood, I think she does some wonderful work here in Australia. I really want to get some sort of sense of what it feels like to inhabit a human consciousness and to pass through this moment of, of living because we're only here for a brief time. So I want that in some way to be acknowledged that that someone else sees and hears and appreciates what it is to be alive and all the sort of sorrows and griefs and joys of existence really yes indeed well it was really a wonderful book to read absolutely glorious in many ways thank you so much Claudine thank you I so appreciate it it means a lot to me this book so I'm I'm just really thrilled when someone gets it so thank you. Susan many writers listen to this podcast and I wondered given your extensive novel writing experience if you had any tips to offer those looking to write a novel or to get their work published. The hardest thing is to just stay focused and to stay sitting in that chair until you've got a manuscript that is the really the hardest thing. I know it sounds like a no-brainer but a, a writer is a person who writes so you absolutely have to do the work first Okay, and what you need to, to remember is not everybody's going to get that work. I, I, I love what the, the late writer Eel Doctorow said about writing in that a manuscript is a, a kind of like a force field through which the electricity of a reader's life th- flows. So you have to match up what you're writing with, with the reader who's going to read it. So after you've written the work, which is the hard part, then you've got to have faith that your work will meet that reader with the right amount of electricity. And, and that means the right agent or the right publisher will pick it up. So you've just got to have that faith. A, a friend, someone who I don't know well, actually, she's the, the New Zealand writer, Elizabeth Knox, but we kind of struck up a friendship at a writer's festival somewhere. And I remember she'd had a very early great success with her first novel called The Vintner's Daughter. And then at the time we met, she'd had this long run of rejections and bad luck and, you know, she hadn't been published. 
And I had had a similar thing. I had been dropped by Faber, who was published, who published my first two books. And we had this moment where we we're just talking about the, the difficulties and the joys of the writer's life. And she said, uh, you know, just remember, writers need to be like rust. You know, rust never sleeps, to quote the Neil Young song. So hang in there. And to my great joy, I just see that that um, Elizabeth has now got this, this book that's being just shouted high from the rooftops. People are just raving about it. So here she is, reinvented some, she's probably about my age, maybe a bit younger, but, you know, reinvented herself. So the thing is, you've just got to be in there for the long haul. Don't be in it for the money. Don't be in it for the fame because you're going to be really disappointed. It's not anything about those things. It's about your truth on the page. And if you can get your truth on the page, your voice, whatever that voice is, and it doesn't mean you individually, it just means your writerly voice, then just hang in there and your writing will meet the right person eventually. That is my message. I really needed to hear that right now. So thank you Good. Very much for that. <laughs> Good. If listeners wanted to learn more about you and your work, where could they do that? Look, I've got a, a website that I've just reinvented. So it's up live now. It's called, It's just www.susanjohnson.net. Susan, it's been an honour and a pleasure to speak with you today about this extraordinary book. I wish you every success. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Thank you so much, Claudine. I really loved it. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.